This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Kernan Mannion. Kernan was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. At the age of 15, he made the choice to join the seminary, going against his parents' wishes. Shortly after finishing his bachelor's degree, he chose not to pursue a path as a priest. He became a radio announcer for a few years and ultimately decided to go to medical school following a passion for the mind that he had been cultivating since youth. Post-internship, he worked in an emergency room for a period of time before transitioning to practicing psychiatry. He also worked with a civilian contractor where he assisted Marines grappling with combat distress at Camp Lejeune. In highlighting the mistreatment of his patients, he was fired from his position. He is now an advocate for physician burnout avoidance, a co-founder of Speak Up Academy, assisting whistleblowers, and a founder of the Center for Physician Rights, known as CPR, to assist physicians in protecting their professional rights. Kernan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much, Asim. I uh, really look forward. To, I've been looking forward to this for some time. You have a very distinguished career uh, in psychiatry, and uh, uh, a theme of your life has been uh, to be in the service of others. And uh, a lot of your activity now continues to uh, to support that. So, I think uh, our audience is going to find this highly inspirational. I um, love in these conversations to go back to to the very beginning, and so I uh, would love for you to share with us about uh, what it was like being born and raised in Louisiana. Oh boy, <laughs> yeah, I uh, uh, I grew up in New Orleans, and my family history goes back several uh, generations, back into the mid eighteen hundreds, and uh, New Orleans is. Um, it's quite the eclectic city, you know, some people consider it a nation unto itself. Uh, and uh, so uh, I grew up uh, uh, within a uh, French and Irish heritage, really. And um, uh, in, at a time in New Orleans when uh, New Orleans was really rife with racism yeah. uh, and uh, ethnicism. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, uh, I grew up in one of four kids. Uh, both my parents uh, are now deceased uh, and uh, grew up Catholic. Okay. Uh, I uh, uh, was an altar boy. And okay. so that was a time when, you know, in the Catholic Church, an altar boy was just, uh, you know, considered to be sort of a special form of, uh, sort, of sort of like the religious equivalent of the Boy Scouts, if you will, you know. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, so, and I loved, I loved being an altar boy. I loved the spiritual aspects of my life as a kid. Mm. Uh, it really shaped me. And then I uh, 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 went to a Catholic grammar school, uh, a parochial school, what they called it. And, um, and uh, then uh, went to, uh, began a Catholic uh, boys high school, De La Salle in New Orleans. Okay. And while there, uh, I began, I was part of a leadership uh, group and, you know, the kind of stuff that you get involved in with high school. But I was a serious student. I mean, bottom line here, I was a serious student. My older brother was more of the athlete. Okay. And I tried to follow in his footsteps. 
but I was horrible at football, <laughs> horrible at track. <laughs> and so, uh, so, um, so you were the second oldest of the four. I was, uh, he was the second. I was, I'm the third uh, okay. of the four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have an older sister, older brother than uh, a younger brother. Uh, and uh, so I really vied, you know, for uh, for attention and and uh, tried to compete with him. But it's like now, nah. and so I I think that uh, partly influenced my choice of really focusing on studying yeah. uh, on matters of the mind. Uh, and I was already a quiet kid, uh, but I think his sort of prominence in the and the and the domain, as well as my older sister, I think I found myself saying, you know what, um, I really need to focus within here. Yeah. So studious kid took an interest in, in science, loved okay. all the chemistry and physics kits that you could get as a kid, uh, growing crystals, making chemicals and that sort of nice. thing. Nice. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just loved it. And then, um, and then I think part of my, uh, my altar boy background, as well as being in a Catholic high school and being in a leadership group, a quote unquote Christian leadership group, uh, uh, influenced me greatly about saying, okay, do I have a calling? You know, this notion okay. of vocation, of calling, right. it really is very important. And so I found myself thinking, you know, I, I do feel that this uh, is truly um, uh, something that I need to consider. So at the, you know, beginning, I would say, at least at the age of 12 or 13, I began thinking about, well, you know, maybe maybe I need to go into the priesthood. You know, maybe wow. I need to study for the priesthood. So Amazing. Uh, I actually left and went into the seminary when I was 15 years old. Wow, okay, it's quite a decision. Oh, it's a very significant decision, yeah. And my parents were against it, actually. Oh, interesting, okay. They didn't want you to pursue that. So this no, really I, spoke to you from, from within. Um, yeah. Uh, I know uh, uh, you've talked about uh, sort of uh, some uh, sort of uh, differences of opinion, let's say. Uh, and I'm euphemizing this <laughs> as much as I can um, uh, while growing up. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like you found a home in the church and in the seminary, and that was a, a draw. Oh, I did. Uh, yeah, I really did. Uh, I found that really um, I had a very, uh, a very domineering uh, dad. I mean, he was a really powerful guy. He was a World War II bomber pilot. Okay. And uh, and he's also the youngest of uh, his uh, siblings, and he was tasked with a lot, and so uh, grew up in a rather contentious uh, struggle uh, with him, as did my siblings, and and you know so uh, dad was uh, overpowering, mom was sort of submissive, and uh, and and you know let's kind of keep the balance, sort of a person, mm. and. But I found that, you know what, um, the commotion there, uh, as well as um, my own vine for a studious life, led me to make that decision to go into the seminary, as well as my desire, really, because I felt like I had a spiritual calling. Because, you know, kind of multiple things going on simultaneously sure. that, uh, that point you in that direction. So I, I went in, and the seminary that I went to, so growing up in New Orleans, uh, there is a major archdiocese of New Orleans. Okay. And so I was aspiring toward the diocesan priesthood. These are the parish priests. Right. They're not of any particular order. And in the Catholic world, there are uh, numerous orders of uh, 
priests and Jesuits and um, Benedictines and Augustinians. And so um, I simply was drawn towards the diocesan priesthood. The seminary, uh, which was uh, 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 outside of New Orleans, 50 miles north of New Orleans, uh, was St. Joseph's Seminary uh, okay. in a town uh, aptly named St. Benedict, which they founded. And so it was a town uh, uh, developed by the Benedictine monks uh, who had bought uh, some humongous amount of acreage of land uh, in the middle of nowhere, uh, outside of Covington, Louisiana. And, uh, and uh, they ran a four-year high school and then two-year college. Okay. And so uh, I went there at the age of 15, and basically it's the equivalent of entering the monastery, if you will. Right, right. And so, as I have said to uh, uh, several others, uh, you know, the, the 50s, 60s were the times of great uh, social rebellion in our society, especially amongst adolescents. And so while everyone else was getting into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I was getting into the Middle Ages. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting form of social rebellion. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> I would say a very studious one, very book-driven, very learning-driven. <laughs> probably, probably the same route that Martin Luther went through. That's you know? right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so um, you finished your course of study there at the seminary. You did the two years of college with them. So actually, so while I was there then, they phased out the high school and became a four-year college. Okay. And so I was able to then uh, complete my last two years of high school and then four years of college. Okay. And uh, I got my uh, degree in philosophy and a minor in uh, a combined minor in English and history. And uh, then through that process there, uh, I went through a very active questioning uh, mm. of, uh, you know, uh, the, um, I would call it the uh, the customary adolescent storm and drong, uh, combined with uh, rebelliousness, uh, combined with uh, spiritual questioning, and so I found myself questioning a whole bunch of, of the basic tenets of Catholicism. Yeah. And uh, you know, when you start questioning, well, why does this have to be this way? Well, why does this have to be that way? Well, you know, why? You know, what, if, if you have a ritual, nobody understands what the ritual is. What's the significance of the ritual? You know, like, excuse me. So, so I actually got the nickname heretic uh, from one of the monks. Wow. Oh, yeah. So I was, I was really kind of, I think, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a bit of a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a bit, I must have a bit of a, you know, it looks like this uh, defiant streak is in my DNA. You know, it's a long... <laughs> Well, the questioning is so important because um, you have two results. Either you will change or it will solidify your belief. And so, you know, the, the hope is that it solidifies. But if it doesn't, then being open to the outcome is just that's uh, that's the right uh, form of, of inquiry uh, and questioning. So um, kudos so. that you did that. Um, clearly, not everyone can handle that, and especially in structures and infrastructures like the Catholic Church. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, well, you know, and I really, I give it to my um, 
teacher who was then the rector of the seminary, uh, Father Marion. And he was a philosopher and he loved philosophy and he loved engaging students in dialogue. And uh, he was a smoker. Okay, so we all smoked at that time. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so he was a smoker. And, uh, and we had a semicircle uh, of, uh, of um, uh, you know, students and like in a class of maybe 10, 12, yeah. <laughs> right? And so we'd get into these very heavy duty dialogues about philosophical questions. And he would say, so Kernan, what do you think about that? You know, and he'd blow smoke in my face, you know, just kind of like up, <laughs> up face, <laughs> that wow. close. Uh, and, you know, you kind of wipe away the smoke and he kind of, you know, it was, he, uh, he, he'd sort of wag his head, uh, you know, as though he had made the definitive um, point. Right. That, that was his exclamation mark. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and I loved the exchange with him. I truly nice. loved the exchange. Nice. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> uh, well, it's fascinating because, um, you know, there are mechanisms for, for change because I think, uh, I mean, you were studying in the late 60s uh, at that time, there, early 70s maybe in them. But in the just a decade or so prior, in the 50s, the Catholic Church went from Latin to vernacular. Okay. And the orientation of the priest as well switched so that the major, congregation could observe what was happening. Major, major transition for Catholicism. Yeah, that was uh, uh, Pope John Twenty Third, uh, and I believe that was in uh, in uh, the early '60s when that occurred, and it caused such a stir. And uh, and traditional Catholics thought that oh my God this was the end of Catholicism, <laughs> right. you know, and and that you know you would go from Latin to the the English, and then before you know it you're bringing in guitars and drums into the church, and you know having <laughs> folk masses, and it's like oh my God the world is falling apart. Uh, so yes, um, really quite a dramatic change. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes uh, the questioning is for good. <laughs> Often. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If, you yeah. know, if a system can't tolerate questioning, then you have to say, well, there's something wrong with the system here. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the best could should be able to survive that and integrate and adapt um, to fit the needs of, of the people who are involved in the system. That should be the ultimate goal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you graduate. And uh, share with us um, uh, your steps after that. So I had a real difficult time making the decision to leave the seminary because it felt like uh, I had uh, I had failed. You know, wow, like I had I'd gone on a course, and uh, and that course now was, you know, it's very difficult to continue to study, uh, uh, go on to study theology, uh, and prepare for the next stage of development for priesthood if uh, you don't believe in uh, the virginity of Mary or uh, the divinity of Christ or necessarily even, you know, the way God is represented. You know, that right. just kind of doesn't sit well with the, sure. the plan. So, uh, so I found myself really in an upheaval, spiritual upheaval, and I left the seminary uh, and I went back to New Orleans and I then um uh lived independently from my family uh who, who were also in new orleans because uh my parents made it very clear look we don't have a lot to go around uh financially mm. and okay. um so uh i i uh became very self-reliant and 
looking for a job. And what do you do, you know, looking for a job uh, with a degree in philosophy? You know, nobody, <laughs> hires, nobody hires people to just kind of put their hands, you know, on their chin and sit on a rock and think. <laughs> so, uh, so I posing uh, for Rodin. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's the that's the image, the Rodin image, and and uh, so. However, um, actually, it was looking at theater because I was uh, very active in the backstage um, crew uh, at college. I loved, I loved, uh, I loved theater, but I especially loved the backstage operations, and I was uh, okay. I was the lighting director. Wow. And I just had a ball at it. Yeah, really loved it. And so uh, I looked at that and I realized, no, this is not it. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I remember a speech teacher in high school telling me that I had a really nice voice. And uh, uh, so, you know, you ought to consider doing something in voice. And so I said, no. So up uh, in the paper comes an opportunity um, that there is a radio station that hmm. is hiring uh, uh, overnight announcers, and they will train. Okay. Uh, well, okay. So yeah. So uh, I applied, and I and uh, another gentleman, an older gentleman at that time, uh, with a just gorgeous resonant bass voice, uh, were brought in, interviewed, and then uh, we were brought into training, uh, starting on the midnight shift, mm. and learning how to work all the dials and work the microphone. And, so I took the training there, and I loved being a radio announcer. Wow, uh, and it was one of those. It was one of those easy listening kind of stations that you don't have to say much. You okay. just come in at the breaks, right? And you just play, you know, thirteen minutes or so of music, and then you fade out, and then you come into an announcement, and then you, you know, do an ad or two, and then you go right back into music. And and at the top of the hour, you would do the news, and the bottom half of the hour, you do uh, you do just a weather report. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, so I truly, I, I had a ball with that. And then during that time while working, my dad and I had a conversation and, uh, he said, you know, um, I know you were interested in psychology. So while, after I got out, I applied for graduate school in psychology. Okay. And, uh, cause I really was, I was just fascinated with, with the mind and, mm. uh, with, with, uh, with how, you know, how the mind works and who we are, uh, why we are. And so I applied to graduate school in psychology and uh, my uh, GREs uh, were mediocre. Mm. And uh, so, and I really didn't have the appropriate preparation, the necessary coursework. Uh, so I got rejections from all, either five or seven schools that I applied to. Okay. Some, um, some um, uh, tactfully worded, uh, others pretty brusque, <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was just you know like oh devastated and so well uh, I, there's an irony there in applying to psychology programs and then having a harsh language <laughs> yeah no it isn't ironic yeah <laughs> yeah and so my dad uh, knew that I had applied knew knew that I didn't get in and uh, he was uh, you know he was an up and coming uh, uh, middle class guy who's trying to aspire toward upper middle class and. You know, he's in the country club and the yacht club and mm -hmm. this and that carnival crew. And, and really, you know, they made a big deal of this. And I, I frankly found the whole thing just really quite hideous. Uh, right. uh, I found it a just giant waste of money. Right. And uh, so, uh, so I, um, um, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, he and I sat down and he said, you know, I know you were interested in psychology. Uh, 
uh, and you didn't get in. Um, my friends uh, tell me that if you wanted, you could apply to med school, and uh, and if you got accepted, then you could, if you wanted, you can go into psychiatry. Now, uh, um, and then he added with his customary uh, coda, uh, not that I respect either of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so uh, I said, that's an interesting idea. And I really wasn't thinking about psychiatry. I was thinking about, oh, oh. so I said, med school is impossible. It's just impossible. I can't do that. Whoa. I don't have any of the pre-med requirements. And, uh, and so I, I don't know. So in any event, I continued working at the radio station. And I said, well, what the hell? What, why not try it? Why not try yeah. a couple of classes uh, during the summer uh, period and see yeah. how it is, how difficult it is. I was really intimidated by you know, all these basic sciences. So uh, I took a couple of classes in, in basic biology, college biology, basic college chemistry, college physics. Um, and I said, well, this is not bad. Right. You know, I can do this. <laughs> and so, uh, so then I continued and I continued my coursework and I did two and a half years of pre-med. Just wow. okay. great pre-med. And then worked uh, full time. Uh, either on the overnight shift or the evening shift, and then sometimes you know moved up in the daytime, okay. uh, some of the prime time periods, and uh, and then uh, got accepted. Uh, Wonderful. And with that, I left the radio station and went to med school, LSU med school. That's really great. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I just can only imagine the challenges of juggling that schedule of taking classes during the day and then having to work at night. Things yeah, we can only know, do when we're young. <laughs> well, that, isn't that the truth? Yes, I know. Uh, but, you know, you do what you got to do. And I, I think it really teaches some great lessons. It says, okay, look, this is what you've got to do. You, uh, um, just, that, that's just it. That's all to it. And you kind of put aside the time and you make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah. So I started at LSU. And then, and then with uh, LSU Med School, um, there, there, you know, there may be, people uh, in your listening audience who don't understand how med school works, but the first two years are the sciences and the latter two years are the clinical uh, training years uh, where you start to first get an encounter with patients. Uh, you first start to do some work on the uh, wards uh, under the supervision of staff. And uh, so the first two years of the basic sciences, uh, anatomy, gross anatomy, which is working on a cadaver and microscopic anatomy, which is histology and, and uh, physiology and all of those things I loved. I loved. Wow, okay. And, and neuroscience, I loved. And I really found myself drawn to that. And, and then the latter two years, we, you go through all the, all the basic rotations of, of internal medicine and pediatrics and surgery. I loved that as well. And so by the end of the fourth year, I really didn't know, you know, I, I, I could have gone into just about anything and loved it. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, uh, uh, psychiatry wasn't a lock. Oh, no, no. Psychiatry wow. wasn't even in the mix. Wow. So no, fascinating. No, not, okay. no, psychiatry not even in the mix. I, I actually thought the whole thing was kind of, I thought the whole field was kind of uh, hokey. Uh, <laughs> uh, and really, I just thought, you know, oh, boy. Um, so I was really more drawn uh, toward neurology, and my decision mm. was a was a cross between neurology and neurosurgery. Okay, wow. And I was uh, I was very much inspired by a particular neurosurgeon in New Orleans, under whom I I served as a med student. With I was just the only med student at this hospital, with one chief resident in neurosurgery, and that neurosurgeon and. 
And I saw a man that just simply excelled uh, in all of the attributes of compassionate uh, physicianhood. Wow. And I thought, oh my gosh, this, this, is, this is my model of what it is to be a physician, a compassionate wow. physician. And Very much a mentor for you. Oh my gosh, yeah. He doesn't know that, uh, but, <laughs> uh, but he really served as quite the inspiration. Yeah. However, uh, when I looked at, I, I, went, I did a rotation in neurology, uh, uh, several, and I thought, no, that's not it. Oh, okay. Because what I realized was that neurology, neurology really felt like um, like uh, being uh, an electrician who can only uh, examine the circuit box and say, "Yep, the fuse is blown." <laughs> that's all they can do, <laughs> right? And I thought, "Well, that that's not exactly um, what I want to do." Right. Uh, neurosurgery felt more, but neurosurgery would have called for a seven-year commitment. That's right. There's a lot of training involved. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I don't think, you know, with the detour that I took, I don't really think I have that in me. And so I did my internship in internal medicine. So I graduated LSU in 1978 and med school. And, uh, and the med school was in New Orleans. And uh, so then I went on to, uh, to my internship in Denver. And then uh, during that internship year, the general medicine internship, where you get to, you know, you are, you are the first line doc, if you will, mm. uh, doing all sorts of procedures, learning how to do central lines and insert chest tubes and do, you know, codes, uh, cardiac arrest codes. And uh, during that year, uh, uh, I said, this doesn't feel like it. Mm. You know, I feel like I think I made the wrong decision. And, uh, and, and, and I may have been grappling with some burnout also at that time, wow. okay. uh, early on, but I said, this just doesn't feel like it. This is not meeting yeah. for me. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not excited about, uh, hearing new drug development and, yeah. you know, and trying to control people's hypertension. It just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. And so, uh, so I decided then that I would, um, I'd take a break and, uh, and, uh, I looked at possibilities. And I realized, you know what? You can't interrupt your, uh, you can't interrupt this flow. You can't interrupt the, you know, your 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 educational flow. It's too dangerous, it seemed. You don't want to have that gap. Yeah. So uh, I uh, I looked at opportunities, and there's an opportunity uh, to take a position as an emergency room physician, straight out of internship. Oh, okay. Uh, in Louisiana, in my home state of Louisiana, oh, right. I was missing. I was missing Louisiana, and so, so uh, what I really should have done, uh, then I should have truly put a backpack on and traveled to Europe. That's mm. what I should have done. I should have cleaned, cleansed my head, uh, cleansed my mind, cleansed my soul, and uh, and really discovered the world. But I didn't. Uh, I, I took the safer course then. Sure. And. And uh, then during that one year of emergency medicine in Louisiana, I saw more stuff than I think, uh, than I think most people in mm. the subspecialties ever see. It was, it was truly eye-opening. Uh, and I realized how complex the challenge is for an emergency medicine doctor. Yeah. And saw, you know, head trauma, body trauma, uh, assaults with, with weapons, um, uh, heart attacks, strokes, uh, heat exhaustion. Oh my gosh. Insects by snake bites. Mm. Uh, we ha actually had a helipad and we, uh, this small hospital had a helipad wow. to serve, uh, people from the rigs because we were right, right. on the oh, Gulf coast. Course. So they would fly yeah. in people with a variety of injuries and, 
uh, we had to assess and treat those. So it was really quite an experience, and um, and and in that one year uh, of emergency medicine, I got sued twice. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and it was it was. I mean, this is the risk of being an ER doc. When things go wrong, people really want. Uh, want to get uh, you, know, you know want to say this is not right this shouldn't have happened and I'm happy to say that uh, one was just simply dropped out of hand okay. uh, and the other was investigated by a uh, medical malpractice tribunal panel which mal which Louisiana had instituted at the time where three doctors one chosen from the plaintiffs one chosen from the from the defense and one chosen by the two doctors review the materials and make a decision. Is there or is there not evidence of malpractice? And they found there was no evidence of malpractice. On that okay. Uh, but that was a two-year ordeal. Uh, oh, goodness. While, while you go through this. And so, so, but during that year, even with that going on, I then decided, um, what do I want to do? Uh, you know, it's not this. Still, it's not this. Yeah. Uh, you know, here I am. I, you know, there's lots of procedures. I feel like, I feel like I'm in a mass unit. Right. You know, and I, I really felt like Hawkeye, you know, from, <laughs> and, and yet I said, no, this is just not it. This is not what I'm looking for. And so I then began thinking about psychiatry and, okay. uh, and I had read Scott Peck's book, The Road Most mm. Traveled. All Scott right. Peck. Oh my gosh. What an inspirational book for me that was. And, and I realized now if that is what psychiatry is, then that's what I want to do. I love that. And, yeah. uh, Peck uh, blended, uh, you know, the humanistic psychology uh, yeah. movement of the time, uh, Maslow and, and Rogers, right. And, right. and I thought, this is, uh, you know, I really want to get into that. So, uh, so I applied and I got accepted uh, to several programs, uh, Harvard's uh, uh, program, uh, Mass Mental, and um, and Tufts and I, for unclear reasons, chose Tufts. I think it was an erroneous decision. Uh, oh. And uh, uh, however, I uh, I did. I chose it. And um, and um, I uh, what I thought was going to be uh, the road less traveled uh, turned out to be more like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh boy. <laughs> and uh, oh my God, you know, how did I end up here? You know, it's like okay. I want to click my heels and say, right. you know, take me home. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well. Yeah, so then, yeah, so a three year journey through that, three year uh, of, uh, of psych residency. And then uh, by the time I got out, I, you know, I had the opportunity to do a fellowship in child psychiatry. I considered it. And I thought, no, I just need out. I need out. I'm done. Mm. You know, and so then I just jumped into private practice from there. Okay. Wow. Um, so uh, when you said done, you meant done more with the institutional type yes, of training. Yes. Done fellowship. with institutional uh, uh, yeah. training. Uh, done. You know, institutions um, institutions uh, uh, have a tendency to have their own collection of narcissists. Uh, oh, yes. And, uh, yeah. and it can become quite problematic. And so of like course, that. yeah. yeah. So I just, was there a desire at that time just um, like, was there a social justice trigger of, you know, I, I want to change this system? You know, um, uh, I, I, I can't say that that was then prominent for me. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, it was still dormant within me. Um, yeah, but I had had the cumulative experiences um, speaking of social justice 
uh, I, I would say that uh, I grew up in a uh, in a racist uh, family, yeah, uh, and in a racist town, racist city. Uh, and my dad was uh, was was, and and most of my relatives were were overtly racist uh, and anti-Semitic, uh, and uh, and and. Uh, falling under the sway of Joseph McCarthy, sure, yeah. and the fear of communism, and uh, seeing a communist under every bed, um, uh, and uh, I thought, wow, you know, I, I, so so uh, I really rebelled against that, and but I, you know, social justice at that time was not was not primary in my mind. Truth be told, um, we had a very uh, uh, we had a public health system and a private health system in Louisiana, and the public health system, Charity Hospital, uh, was meant for the indigent, uh, mm -hmm. and the indigent were predominantly uh, black, uh, and uh, and uh, some immigrants, and the other systems were for people who had money and who had insurance. And, right, right. And but it was just one of those things that at that point in time I didn't question. Okay. And so you started your practice in Louisiana. You came back. Uh, no. So what I did was, uh, was, uh, so that I was, uh, I got into residency, uh, in, at Tufts in Boston, in Boston. Yeah. Right. And so Tufts New England medical center. So I then, I did my training there at Tufts and then I decided I would stay in the Boston area. Where and you've remained until today. Well, no, no, no. Okay. So, so I, I then did that. And then, uh, and then it was um, um, about, let's see, so I got out in 83, so all the way until 2002. Um, so uh, what was that, um, 19, years. 19 years, yep, yeah. that, um, that I stayed in the Boston area, but then that's when I, you know, eventually got burned out, and more about that if you want to know. And For then sure. that's when I moved down to, uh, to North Carolina. Okay. And um, so, yeah, tell and us about returned, this. And then returned, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 19 year period. Um, you were strictly in private practice, or were you doing, you were familiar with the hospital? So, I had a diversity, uh, what many psychiatrists do uh, who are in private practices, I had a diversity of, uh, of uh, uh, venues. So, uh, part of my time was a private practice, part of my time was a hospital clinic. Um, uh, part of my time was actually doing some evaluations at the Veterans Administration Clinic uh, for compensation evaluations. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, as you're earlier in your career, you do a diversity of things. Right. Um, it's kind of like a portfolio career, if you will. And, uh, and you get uh, onto a medical staff, a hospital staff, and then serve on their staff as an admitting psychiatrist if they have a psych unit. Uh, or if they don't have a psych unit, then you're uh, a consultant. And so I uh, had a variety of uh, appointments uh, in the Boston area and, uh, and saw the diversity of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, clinical opportunities. Uh, and, uh, and had to, you know, at that point in time, the, the healthcare system was changing and managed care was coming onto the scene and and uh, capitated contracts were coming onto the scene in an attempt to control healthcare costs. And what you ended up doing in that period of time was fighting with insurers over coverage for sessions. And you know, here I am seeing people who are desperately ill, uh, grappling with depression, grappling with suicide, 
people who really were grappling with a, with a range of, uh, of disorders, including people who cut themselves, or, mm. you know, people who are having uh, hostile impulses. And uh, you're then having to beg uh, uh, a master's level uh, trainee uh, for another session or two, yeah. you know, while you're dealing with somebody who's actively suicidal. So I'm sort of like, this is crazy. So, so, um, uh, so one of the things that, that uh, I, I took an opportunity to work at a rehabilitation hospital, a physical rehabilitation hospital, specializing uh, in uh, the rehabilitation after head injury, uh, mm-hmm. uh, after spinal cord injury, uh, and after stroke and for those with chronic progressive neurologic illness like multiple sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease. Now, I had no particular training in that apart from my interest in neuropsychiatry, you know, the interface between neurology and psychiatry. But I thought, wow, this could really be quite the opportunity. Uh, And there was no such thing as rehabilitation psychiatry. And to my knowledge, there still isn't. And so, uh, so I jumped into that world in about 1990, I think it was, and, uh, and I was simply, I was fascinated. Uh, and here was a hospital that really felt upbeat. All of the physical therapists, occupational therapists, the, phys- the physiatrists, those who specialize in rehab medicine, really had a positive outlook. Nice. Uh, and, 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 and it was very inspirational to me. Yeah. And so as I got into that world, then I also realized, oh my gosh, uh, we're dealing with people who are grappling with some of the worst traumas and trying mm-hmm. to recover. You know? yeah. and, and so the more I worked in that setting, the more I, uh, the more I, uh, I, I, the deeper I got into understanding what are the phases of adjustment, let's say to spinal cord injuries, that became my forte then. Okay. And I realized that, you know, the, the closest model to that was uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's uh, work on death and dying and the okay. phases of coming to terms with that. I see. And as I reviewed those five phases, you know, starting with denial and then going through mm. to acceptance, um, I recognized that um, the process of adaptation to spinal cord injury uh, uh, doesn't follow a sequence like mm. that. It goes from denial to acceptance to denial again to bargaining oh, yeah. to denial yeah. to acceptance to to you know uh, rage and 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 you realize wow okay so however one of the things that I discovered there was that number one the power of team meetings to help make sense of of the complex journey of recovery is is simply vital and mm-hmm. in the newer arena of healthcare that has been eliminated because it's not cost effective, quote unquote. Right? Oh, wow. It's not, it's not a profit center. So you can't, you know, you bring together the various therapists, just as an organization would call together all of its, uh, you know, yeah. its key team. It's an opportunity uh, to confer, get other that's, opinions. That's, that's exactly right. And mm-hmm. to kind of share perspectives. What do you see right. going on? What do I see going on? Uh, and so um, uh, I, at that hospital, I was going, while I was on staff there, I, uh, I was, uh, uh, co-director of the outpatient mental health program. And, and uh, then the nonprofit hospital was sold to a for-profit hospital mm-hmm. chain. Okay. And, and, um, and the for-profit chain came in and treated everything as a uh, cost center, a right. profit center. Right. 
and if it didn't draw a profit, then it was discontinued. It's eliminated. Wow. And so okay. you start to take apart the glue that holds the team together, yeah. that holds the whole structure together. And I see that happening in healthcare so, so uh, dispersed. And so in any event, uh, staff was getting demoralized. I was getting demoralized, but I was also getting demoralized and, and affected by the trauma, the stories of trauma. And, uh, and, and, you know, and you witness people who are in varying states of anguish sure. and trying to rediscover themselves, trying to get uh, going. And, and it takes a toll on you. If you listen to people, listening to stories of anguish uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, is traumatizing. Yeah. And that's where I learned the concept of, uh, of, of secondary uh, traumatization secondary PTSD or vicarious traumatization. Well, especially uh, for an empath and a humanist, which I've, I've described you as before, and then you talked about uh, uh, the book yeah. uh, in humanist psychology, but just uh, imagine it was very challenging for you. It was indeed. And, uh, and for me, uh, actually, I, I didn't even know anything about the concept of burnout. Mm. Um, but all I knew was that uh, this is, uh, this is taking a toll on my soul. And, uh, now what I also learned about my burnout then was that a number of things were taking a toll on my soul. Mm. Um, my dad was dying from a stroke, a stroke. Oh, wow. you know? And, and so the overlap between my professional life and my family life was really quite uh, intertwined. And, uh, and his, uh, his illness uh, sort of opened up uh, some dormant family pathology that, you know, became intense. And, and then before you know it, you know, I'm dealing with that. And then I'm fighting off the insurers and trying to figure out how I'm going to get paid, you know, and they're saying, oh, you know, a person whom they already spent a quarter of a million dollars on to, 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 to get to this point in their lives uh, in a wheelchair is now rolling into my office telling me they want to kill themselves. And the insurance company is arguing with me about whether they're going to give me a session. <laughs> right? It's like, this is insane people. And so, yes, yeah. so I, I just, I found myself in a squirrel and, uh, and fighting with the insurance company, like, and, and all of the anguish. And, and, you know, I think that, that one of the amazing things is that in healthcare today, the amount of trauma that we see takes a toll on clinicians. I, I don't think that many people realize the toll that suffering takes on physicians. Yeah. yeah. We, you know, physicians have that kind of like removed demeanor, uh, but I can assure you they're not removed. Yeah. They are deeply affected by what they see. Of course. And it's their professionalism that they have to hold in their check. And the, the great, uh, the great uh, uh, American psychiatrist is William Osler, the father, if you will, of American medicine, spoke about this notion of equanimity, of trying to mm. hold your balance between, between uh, uh, intimate proximity to the patient's disease process and suffering and optimal reserve away from that mm, so that you can yeah. do the work that you need to do. Right, uh, right. And so uh, while I was there, we didn't really have any sort of support group for us. Uh, there was nowhere for me to go to process that. Amazing. Uh, uh, and and uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, I was getting so worn down, so wearied. Uh, I, I, I ended up uh, breaking down in tears at a team meeting. Wow. And, uh, and I realized, you know what? Uh, I've hit the wall. I've, this, it's time yeah. for me to get out of this because I've hit the wall here. Wow. And so uh, I left. I left the hospital in a state of brokenness. I mean, in a state of, uh, of, of uh, as though I'd failed. 
Wow. That's one of the things about burnout is that you carry this legacy of failure with you. Like you, you couldn't take mm -hmm. the, yeah. yeah. And this was uh, 2002. So, uh, so that was actually 95 uh, is when I left the hospital staff. And I would say during the next five, six years, um, uh, I continued my private practice. Okay. Uh, so I had a half-time private practice uh, while I was working at the hospital. Um, and I, uh, you know, uh, truth be told, I held on to that. I, I, you know, the reason why I had told myself I was holding on to that was to be of service to my patients. Right. I was losing money at it, actually. Um, wow, half-time okay. practice. Um, the reality uh, that I could only discover later in reflection was, yes, it was true that it was partly altruistic, but it was also for my own identity. Sure. I had yes. to hold on to that in order yeah. to hold on to my physician identity, my psychiatry identity. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and then I, you know, I said, you know what, I just, um, I, I got to move. I, something here again is not working. No. And, uh, no. I'm not ready to go back into the world of uh, medicine, of psychiatry. Um, and uh, I got into the world of consulting and I'd gotten into the world of coaching by okay. number one, being right. the recipient of coaching from someone who's in training. And I loved the model. Nice. I loved like, oh my God, this is so upbeat, so positive, so yeah. forward thinking. That's you know? good. And I loved the idea of, of, of consulting. That, you know what, you can go into an organization and you can see the problems there and you can help them solve them. Yeah. Like imagine, <laughs> everybody, here, here's a group in healthcare, uh, one of the projects I was on, where, where uh, they really try to do good work. It was a children's yeah. hospital uh, uh, and, and they're really trying to do good work, but everybody hates each other, you know, and they're, and they're, and they're coming away miserable from their work right, where, right. where they need their energy to, you know, to do the healing. And, and so, so, but the fact that you can put together some interventions, you can help them do mm. some problem solving, that is like, oh my God, what an opportunity. So I fell into the world of coaching consulting and I loved it. That's uh, great. And then that's when I, uh, you know, I said, you know what, I, I, I also need to move from the Northeast. So I took an opportunity to go on down to North Carolina, to Wilmington, okay. uh, and just kind of change, change the entire scenario. Yeah. Uh, girlfriend and I broke up and I said, okay, I'm done. You know, I need, yeah. I need, I need the entire change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wholesale change. Yeah. So, 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 what happened from there is that uh, you know, I, uh, I, I, I got back into a, some clinical work, but I then got into the speaker circuit. I was doing presentations on burnout. I presented to the AMA several times mm -hmm. uh, on understanding physician burnout when it was really new. You know, yeah, when it was new, right. new uh, input to them uh, that burnout is not the same as depression. It looks right. like it, but it's not. Right. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and we need to understand it, but I, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure that I, that people really understood the gravity of it. Then, uh, they still had a tendency to kind of point the finger at those who get burned out must be weak, must be deficient. Sure. Yeah. That's and, a uh, horrible stigma that's attached to it. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 And so, so yeah, so, uh, I was down in North Carolina and, uh, and I was going then, you know, you spoke about burnout. So I was going then in multiple directions. Uh, I was I was having clinical practice, and then I was also doing coaching and consulting, and getting on the speaker circuit, and you know, and trying to basically build each of these businesses, sure. and uh, and then again burning the candle at multiple ends. And I said, you know what, uh, I got to take that. I got to do something different here. This is really kind of crazy. I carried some debt, a significant amount of debt with me from my burnout experience. And wow. so that's part of why I was kind of scrambling to do this. Mm. And uh, an opportunity came up for me to take a position at, uh, at Camp Lejeune 
uh, a psychiatric physician as a civilian contractor. Uh, and I said, wow, look at this, you know, um, days only, no night call, no weekend, <laughs> you know, uh, how great is this? Paid yeah. vacation, you know, wow, oh nice. my God, and you know, paid CMA, <laughs> this is just, this is like golden, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, the rest uh, becomes a complicated uh, journey from there. Right. Yeah. Well, um, and I'd love to, if you, you know, as much as you're comfortable sharing, would love to hear about it and, and share with the audience because I think that's an, another important uh, kind of pillar of your life and uh, the advocacy work that you're doing now. In addition to helping with physician burnout, I think this is really core to what defines you at the moment. Yeah. Um, so. So I went there uh, to, uh, to Camp Lejeune, and there was a new program that had been congressionally developed called the Deployment Health Clinic. And, uh, and it was meant by Congress to help guys who were coming back from combat, uh, tours of combat, address PTSD, which was now finally becoming, you know, coming into the fore, and, uh, and to address it in a way that bypassed the traditional mental health route. Because the mental health route for so many people, but especially in the stoic military, uh, is one that is seen to be a badge of, of dishonor, of shame. Mm -hmm. That right. somehow, again, you can't take the heat, right? right. You, must be, you must be a mental defective, a weakling. Uh, and so, um, so Congress had mandated this program, and, uh, and it, uh, it seemed to be a pretty innovative program. And unfortunately, the program that I entered into um, was uh, led, by, uh, led by a man who uh was not a physician not a psychologist was a minister retired minister at the rank of captain but was okay. retired from his navy career and uh, had no experience whatsoever in high-risk mental health mm. and uh and was running this program and 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 quite frankly was dangerously inept uh, yeah. and refused to have feedback from professionals in the field and so uh, it was a program also where the entire mental health program uh, at the base was under the direction of a nurse practitioner. Mm. And uh, this nurse practitioner also had no high-risk mental health experience. Mm. And, uh, and this nurse practitioner uh, seemed to operate clinically with no supervision whatsoever and yet carried immense weight. Yeah. And so decisions are being made about programming, about the delivery of services, um, uh, and, and there are so many deficiencies. I mean, get this, we have, if you're dealing with the highest of high-risk mental health, this is the highest. I mean, these are guys uh, who, are, who uh, have been through the rigors of combat, uh, right. who have seen awful things, right. um, and, uh, and who come back all stirred up, uh, they're yeah. revved up. Uh, they uh, are grappling, uh, uh, many are grappling with severe uh, uh, PTSD. Some are dealing with concussions from blast injuries as well. Uh, they're being revved up, makes their marriages miserable, so they're in, in states of disrepair. Uh, some are then being seen as losers, wusses, uh, by their command, and their command uh, mm. uh, uh, is intimidating them by saying what losers they are. And, and they're trying to get the help they need. And, uh, and we've got this inept clinic that is 
that, that the morale is so low and uh, staff are leaving and, and we got a boss who's just not hearing it. And yeah, we got really man, obvious, yeah. it's chaos, just really chaos. And, but get this, it was so inept that, um, that, you know, in any sort of a mental health clinic of this nature, you would have rounds uh, uh, at least two times a week, if not daily. To, to kind yeah. of check in to see of what course. Yeah. On this that's this. kind of standard of care. We had no rounds, Amazing. Wow. none. Uh, we had no suicide protocol. Oh, okay. We had no violence protocol. Wow. And uh, and you say well, people wait 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 that's not going to work and 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 so the more you know I and others tried to bring these things to attention and uh, and I saw people come away from uh, the boss's office uh, in tears. You know, because wow. they were just like it was a screaming match, and and he just he, he's not making any headway. But he would then sabotage them, yeah. and write them up, and and uh, I thought this is just this is this is crazyville. You know, this is really yeah. insane. And yeah. so, uh, and I had I had therapists coming into my office at the end of the day and just kind of debriefing, and they break down in tears about <laughs> what they had heard. You know, about the the anguish and the, so. Uh, so I tried to, you know, I tried to bring a whole number of programs uh, to the fore, and uh, I tried to interface with neurology, and that was sabotaged. And it's like, it's like you're in a system that the leadership is simply so toxic. Exactly. That you say, "Wow, uh, how can this be?" Yeah. You know. And yeah. So in any event, I, the more I raised issues, the more my boss framed me as a troublemaker, uh, the more I tried to intervene on behalf of these guys, the more I was seen. Actually, there was a consideration of, uh, of charging me with uh, conspiracy to mutiny. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is how high, this is how, how serious this was getting. And, you know, I went to the contractor, uh, I, so I, I worked for a civilian contractor. Right. And the contractor uh, basically made a decision. Well, look, we want the job. We don't want you. We we want the gig, you know. And uh, so you're just gonna have to shut up. Basically, that was the implicit message. Yeah. Yeah. And they proved it. Uh, and so ultimately, ultimately, I um, um, my boss managed to orchestrate my uh, my termination by abruptly discontinuing the care of all of my patients mm. who were so dangerous. suicidal. No, it just is, is horrendously dangerous. And it's in a really precarious position, the patient. And I, and I said, I'm not going to tolerate this. I did, you can't do this. This is simply, you know, look, you want to you wanna, uh, you wanna yell at me, you want to punish me, uh, you do it, but don't hurt these guys. Yeah. And yeah. They just acted in this unilateral, indifferent way, uh, uh, telling me that for them, these guys are just simply nothing but uh, replaceable bricks. Uh, mm. They can be used in any way they want. And... And I found that abhorrent. Of course. And, uh, and so uh, with that disruption of care and knowing that I had a number of people who were very, very unstable, very fragile, uh, I was trying to keep out of the hospital uh, and, uh, and they were deteriorating. And now with my abrupt cessation, my termination, I knew that they were, they were in danger. Bottom line here is I had to write the uh, Inspector General, uh, mm. Department of Defense, the Inspector General of the Marine Corps, Navy, uh, and um, and make a, an urgent complaint. And I said, life is at stake. Um, um, and they sent an investigator, um, but they were tipped off before the Inspector General arrived. Uh, uh, and. Uh, and then they tried to orchestrate that. And then they tried to rig my record after they fired me. Wow. They fired me immediately on the spot to try yeah. to prevent me from talking with the initial investigator. And then, then uh, they rigged my record after I had been fired. 
and that was uh, found out by uh, uh, a journalist uh, who wrote a series of pieces uh, for Salon.com called Mark Benjamin. And mm -hmm. uh, then Mark published the before and after, the before, okay. the, the evaluation and the after evaluation. And so subsequently with that, I said, this is unacceptable. Uh, a congressman allied with me, Congressman Walter Jones, uh, and, uh, and he was determined to get to the bottom of this. And then um, uh, Navy, uh, Navy uh, uh, did a sham investigation and Congressman Jones found out that it was a sham investigation mm. and demanded a new investigation. The new investigation was likewise a, a shoddy investigation. And, mm. And then before you know, it's like, okay, uh, I am the problem and I'm characterized as the troublemaker. And mm. then from there, unbeknownst to me, <laughs> um, the mechanism was in place to derail my career. Oh, goodness. And so what came from that was uh, the more I protested, the more I raised a stink about the things that were going on, the more it seems the forces were aligned to make me go away. Wow. And so I then uh, I, uh, uh, was subjected to pretty intensive uh, uh, semi-covert surveillance, the kind of surveillance that is um, that people are following you, right. uh, mm -hmm. and you notice it, and yet it's all plausibly deniable. Sure. Uh, and um, unfortunately, um, and we won't go into it here, but um, you know, uh, subjected to a variety of other. Uh, mechanisms of covert harassment, including low frequency noise throughout the night oh, uh, and, uh, and uh, multiple locations where I lived uh, that were overcome with noxious fumes. Um, and uh, you say like, wow, this is really quite the, uh, you know, quite the campaign. So that's when I, I, I it was getting really quite dangerous uh, as I was trying to reestablish my practice. And I went to the, uh, I went to the police uh, chief in the town that I uh, uh, live just to say, look, you know, I want you to hear what's going on here. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately they decided to use that as an opportunity to make me look crazy. And so oh with God. that, then they, uh, the uh, police, um, uh, filed an anonymous uh, or, or secret report uh, to the medical board saying uh, we were concerned about Dr. Mannion's health. Mm. And from there, then the medical board got involved and said, oh, we're going to send you to the physician health program. Oh, I no. said, no, I don't think so. And I got an independent evaluation uh, prior to that that said he has no illness, no impairment. And this is a person who's interviewed other whistleblowers. Um, and, but that was not acceptable to the board. They were determined that they were going to make this uh, go away. And uh, so I have, to me, uh, you know, I have no, I have no firm basis to understand the connection between the medical board and the uh, and the PHP and the and the contractor. Uh, but the whole sequence of events seems awfully suspect. Sure, of course. So, uh, so in any event, so I yeah, I I had my. Uh, 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 they didn't uh, want to accept that uh, no uh, absence of diagnosis. And so the PHP then conducted uh, 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 a consultation, a diagnostic consultation, which they then later denied. But in that consultation, mm -hmm. then they found me to have a mental illness. Oh, that I must be delusional. This can't really be happening. I must be delusional. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, this is really, this is preposterous. And, uh, and then I saw the mounting campaign to you are going to be, uh, you are going to be silenced. 
And, uh, and I had shared with the police, uh, and I think it's fair to say now that the congressman is deceased, um, that um, I shared with the, uh, with the police that uh, the congressman uh, had told me of his intent uh, back in 2012 or so, that uh, he said, I'm so concerned about what I hear from you and others at this base with regard to mental health. I'm so concerned that I want to open uh, a congressional investigation into mm. active duty mental health care, and I want you on it. Wow. So uh, to me, I think that gives pretty, uh, pretty strong weight to the incentive to derail my career. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and so anyway, so, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that continued. And then uh, I fought, uh, I refused to go to their pre-planned uh, program for evaluation. I said, this is not fair. Uh, I then arranged an independent evaluation. That independent evaluation uh, at the last minute was contaminated by the medical board and the physician health program demanding uh, correspondence and dialogue with this person. So I have no idea what was said. Sure. And that person comes out and says, well, you know, if all this is true, I mean, all these really wild things that he's saying that must be delusional. And the board then uses that as the imprimatur to say, okay, he's delusional. And, uh, and, uh, uh, um, you, uh, you, uh, are either going to, uh, uh, you either, this is what the lawyer for the board told me, okay? The lawyer for the board, who, by the way, happens to be coincidentally an active duty military reserve <sighs> officer is the prosecutor, right? Jeez, <sighs> oh, you know, and he says, uh, uh, to my lawyer, he says, tell Dr. Mannion, uh, he has 24 hours as soon as that report was received. He has 24 hours to either voluntarily inactivate his license or we will issue a sanction finding him incapable of practicing with reasonable skill and safety by reason of mental illness. Oh my goodness. And I thought, this can't be happening. This is, this is like a dystopian nightmare. That's right. Absolutely. No, this can't be happening. And it was happening. And, and under those conditions, I said, you know what? Uh, if that goes out, there's, it's irretrievable, yeah, right? That's right. So I said, I guess it looks to me like you kind of got the gun to my head, don't you? Yeah. So I'm going to have to voluntarily inactivate my license uh, just to protect the potential of my career. So I voluntarily inactivated my license. Um, uh, earlier, I had to stop my practice because of their intrusion. Uh, and, um, and as a result of the interruption of care, a patient of mine committed suicide. Oh, goodness. I'm so and, sorry. Uh, and I, I oh, thank you. And I, I uh, and I thought, you know what? Um, and then ultimately, uh, uh, I, I, I had to inactivate my license. And then I said, you know, I'm going to sue them. Uh, and so anyway, so you know, I just finished the suit for wrongful termination uh, uh, from the contract, and uh, that went down badly uh, because mm. uh, they said, oh no, this wasn't really a he wasn't really a whistleblower. He's just a pain in the ass because of what had, you know, what had, what had been put together. So, so I lost that and uh, my whistleblower attorney, a, a nationally renowned attorney said, Kernan, we're not gonna appeal because quite frankly, it's unfair, but uh, the deck stacked. Sorry, yeah. you really don't have much of a chance in, in winning this, the, you know, bottom line here is, uh, the evidence was clear that there was, there was a conspiratorial involvement with regard to, uh, to planting, you know, planting evidence and, and making me look like a nutcase. Well, anyway, so, so um, I then uh, 
uh, decided to sue the medical board and the physician health program. And, uh, and then, uh, wouldn't you know it, um, we end up getting the same federal judge. <laughs> the same federal judge says, uh, oh, you know, and I have no doubt that the judge's opinion was already contaminated. I'm, I'm obviously just a pest. I'm a, I'm a you know, a legal pest. And so, um, so bottom line here is, is that we lost that. And, and my then attorney, uh, a different attorney said, uh, you know, Kernan, we're not going to take this on appeal because uh, it looks like the deck stacked. It's going to be very costly. You don't have any money. And, uh, uh, you know, because by that time you're broke. And, and I said, well, okay, I've got one more chance here. I'm going to do the appeal myself. So I wrote my own uh, appeal to the Fourth wow. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, you know, as, uh, as, as uh, sloppy as these things will be and as, as uneducated as they will be. But the court accepted my lengthy 90 page or whatever it was uh, uh, appeal, which, you know, exceeded their recommended length by about, you know, four times. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they tolerated it. Uh, and then uh, they, they, they based, it's not a, they're not looking at new evidence. They're not looking at, you know, they're just simply saying, did the lower court Right. Go right. And they say, well, yeah, lower court looks like it met this and this and this. So, okay, you know, we uphold lower court findings. And then Ugh. what I did not realize is that they, there was a little, little gem in there that said, um, you know, that I could in fact sue uh, the board uh, on uh, denial of my, for my reapplication of my license. So okay. I reapplied to the same state board and they wanted to make me go back to the same predators who assaulted uh, uh, me in their in their false evaluation. I said, I'm not going. Yeah, yes, I'm not going. Yeah. And they refused to activate my license. And so bottom line here is I said, um, this is BS. Uh, and uh, I got to regroup here. But one of the things I know from this whole process was in talking with other physicians around the country, I'm not alone in this. Mm. This is this is a modus operandi, right. not just to whistleblowers, not just to military whistleblowers, but to whistleblowers within hospital systems, with, with to to to, uh, to physicians who are trying to uh, say no, this is wrong, understaffing, or you know, more recently, inadequate PPE. Right. Uh, and and I said this is wrong. This is an abuse of psychiatry, for state purposes. This is unacceptable. It's a denial of due process. It's, it's unacceptable. Absolutely. And and the fact that you are ruling in this way so out of control. Is, and, yeah. and and the governor and the attorney general refused to intervene. This is unacceptable. And 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 my physicians colleagues are being driven to suicide mm. as a result of being caught in a machine like this. This yeah. is unacceptable. So the North Carolina and, and I had assembled a group of people uh, who were allies and so one uh, a senior uh, um, a senior psychiatrist who was formerly vice chair of psychiatry at Duke um, had uh, had had um, uh, uh, with four other psychiatrists, senior psychiatrists, realized the North Carolina Physician Health Program was making diagnoses that were not consistent with what these five clinicians were seeing in their practice of these same mm -hmm. physicians. Oh, wow. And they realized they were rigging the diagnoses and said, whoa. So he was able to go to the governor. The governor then went to the auditor. The auditor then uh, conducted an evaluation and the auditor found in 2014, I believe it was, the auditor found uh, that in the preceding decade, uh, the North Carolina Physician Health Program had evaluated 1,140 physicians and universally 
denied all due process. Oh, wow. And do you know what the state of North Carolina did? Nothing. Nothing. No mitigation. No attempt to outreach to these physicians. Yeah. And meanwhile, the North Carolina Physician Health Program continued in its horrendous ways, lying to federal agencies about its conduct of diagnostic evaluations. Lying. So with that, and with the loss of my patient to suicide, the loss of my career, my humiliation sure. internationally being published as basically the town, uh, the village idiot, if you will. Right. Right. I thought this is so frightening. I have no choice but to do something about this. Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, I feel like there are certain points in, in one's life where where there's a convergence of things and, uh, and, and um, the greater being, you know, the, 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 the cosmos, if you will, the, the, the creator, there, there are junctions in your life where, where something presents itself to you and it's yours. It has your name on it. Okay? It is yours and you must do something about it. Nobody else's. And you can shun it. But, but you're not going to, your life is not going to feel right. That's right. And you have to step up to the plate and say, this is on my plate and this is what I have to do. Do I want to be doing this? No. But this is what I have to do. You, you need to do, yeah. And so that's, that's very much then how I then, how my life course has kind of taken this direction mm -hmm. of, of helping other physicians and trying to create a program called CPR, the Center for Physician Rights, right. which is, uh, you know, physicianrights.net and, uh, and trying to help physicians because when you're struck by this, you don't even know where to turn and you're so right. dumbfounded by it yeah. and traumatized by it. And, so part of the program is helping physicians just kind of make sense of what they're going through. Part of it is uh, peer support. So I built right. a peer support program. Um, and part of it is trying to help guide them into legal directions because unfortunately, the vast majority of, uh, of practicing attorneys do not know the appropriate strategies to defend physicians. Yeah, it's a very specialized area with uh, the yeah. the power that these PHPs seem to have, and and each yeah. state has its own PHP. Yes, yeah, so there, uh, so forty seven out of fifty states apparently uh, have a PHP, but it turns out that little known is that they have obtained exclusive contracts uh, mm. with states, exclusive, uh, non openly bid contracts. Okay. And it turns out that they pose themselves as uh, many of them pose themselves as uh, 501c3 educational nonprofit public charities. <laughs> they carry no uh, medical malpractice insurance. And yet they are conducting diagnostic evaluations of life import yeah, yeah. and making decisions to uh, uh, that they forward to the medical board, right. which then publicizes their findings publicizes protected health information, false protected health information, right. and then destroys a person's career and says, you either go along with us in our program where we're going to send you to an out-of-state program that we have prearranged at a cost of $10,000 out of your pocket, mm. a program that is going to give us the diagnosis we want, and you either go along with it or we'll destroy you. That's the bottom line. 
So that's why I took on this, uh, this challenge and I'm determined and we are making headway. I mean, I have no doubt that we're going to make headway and I have no doubt that, uh, that the interventions that we're developing, especially in the area of law uh, and Americans with Disability Act, uh, taken a year and a half of research uh, with a specialist in disability law. Uh, but we now understand, guess what? Uh, these people have been overtly, flagrantly, defiantly abusing the ADA. So I think that we're going to make change, and uh, and I, I I want to see a whole new era uh, uh, in in medicine today, where we have uh, where we have oversight of these uh, reckless renegade agencies, right. Right. and where we develop a new understanding of how to help physicians do the work that they need to do in a safe way for them. Yeah, no, psychologically absolutely. safe that they can get the support services they need. Right, right. And um, what is the, the status of your license at the moment? Has it been reinstated? No. Oh, wow. No, I, uh, I, I had applied to uh, to North Carolina, and uh, after you know, after the uh, before the two year period was up, where I would have to uh, re, uh, you know, almost redo residency, if you will. Um, and uh, so, uh, and they, that's when uh, they uh, chose not to respond to my application. Uh, they wanted to make me go to the PHP and I said, no, I'm sorry. And I provided for them a second independent uh, forensic psychiatric evaluation, um, which uh, entailed 30 hours of uh, evaluations and research of all records, including documentation, by the way, I've seen documentation of one of my mentors uh, one of my mentors in my whistleblower case, uh, lawyer, uh, but he was not serving as a lawyer. He was serving as a guide. He was a four Bronze Star Vietnam veteran wow. uh, who then uh, got his PhD in analytical chemistry, <laughs> then joined the FBI, who then became uh, a supervising chemist, uh, saw corruption at the FBI lab mm. and blew the whistle mm. and was of course publicly humiliated and fired. Yeah. He knew what I was going through. Yeah, of course. And he became my mentor throughout this entire ordeal. He'd been a lifesaver. And, uh, and, and uh, so uh, he saw all of this and, uh, and you just realized this is an atrocity. So, so in my appeal, um, I tried to say, look, guys, this is not right. I've been deprived of due process. I've been tried to this, blah, blah, blah. And, and the courts just basically go, you know, I eh, eh, guess you need a lawyer to talk legalese, but, uh, you know, sorry, we can't help you. And, and then you just run out of energy, you run out of, you run out of money. Uh, you don't have the yeah. ability to represent yourself. And you're, you're just kind of like spent and you say like, okay, I'm done. Uh, so could I have applied elsewhere? I guess. Um, and, uh, and yet, um, and yet you get to a point where you, now the hurdle to try to reactivate a license is just simply too immense. It's yeah. just like, it's just impossible. And I don't want to devote that much time, uh, to it. Yeah. Uh, so. Wow. Um, I am so deeply sorry for these experiences you've been forced to endure, um, all in the name of doing the right thing for your patients. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, at the same time, though, um, uh, I, you know, I, I hope it comes across that I'm, um, I've gotten over the grief of it. I mean, it's pretty yeah. traumatic, as you can imagine. Of course. But beyond the grief. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a concept in psychiatry, an emerging concept in psychiatry that I learned in actually in dealing with combat-related PTSD, 
the concept called moral injury. Moral injury uh, is a newer concept having to do with the experience of having been betrayed. Betrayed by a person or an institution in a mm. position of authority about matters of core ethical importance. Now, what I went through and what many other physicians are going through with this process is profound moral injury. And what, what the uh, author Jonathan Shea found, Jonathan Shea, uh, a MacArthur uh, recipient, um, wrote the book uh, Achilles in Vietnam. Mm. And, and, and he said that what happens in moral injury is that it is such a fundamental disturbance of your own psychological sensibility, your entire orientation toward life, that your character is fundamentally altered. You become embittered. You become withdrawn. Sure. And he called attention to this moral injury. And I thought, okay, I see what's in store for me, and I do not want that to happen. Right. Okay. And so, so my uh, my stance has been, no, I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm pretty upset. <laughs> I'll spare the vulgarity. <laughs> yes, pretty, right, right, yeah. But I'm also now I recognize that had this not happened to me this would continue in the same secret assaultive way to many other physicians. It's on my plate, again, this is my duty. This is what I have to do. But I'm going to bat it from the standpoint of, you know what? I really don't think that the people who are doing this harm, many of them, I really don't think they're doing it intentionally. I don't even think they know the system of harm that they've created. Wow. My goal here is to take my experience then and to help them understand how the system, which they may believe is a benevolent system, is truly a very dangerously hurtful system, and I want to help them change it. And had I not had this experience, I would not have this opportunity. That's I see it. It's a superb way to look at it, very altruistic. <laughs> Um, it, uh, there was a lot of suffering you went through, a lot of uh, trauma um, uh, to, to get to that place. It's, uh, I think it speaks volumes um, about how you are as a, as a human and a being to have overcome this sense of uh, moral injury and keep yourself from becoming a, an embittered human that uh, wouldn't have had the wherewithal or the desire to, to help others. And so um, it's really, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, the, the obstacles that were put in front of you and uh, to, to where you are today. Um, and and so is, thanks, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. There's still obstacles. And, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but the bottom line here is, you know, what, an experience like this helps you understand what was it that, uh, that motivated Martin Luther King? How did he sustain himself? True. What was it motivated uh, Nelson Mandela? Of course, Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, Mahatma Gandhi. What is it that motivated these people to say this is, you know, this is my calling. This is what I have to do. And 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 opportunities like this allow you to then uh, deeply breathe in uh, their their magnificent commitment. Yeah, I mean the amazing strides they made socially were often at a deep personal impact and and loss. Yeah. Um, you know, not even just uh, imprisonment in the case of Mandela, but just family relationships. Yeah. There was a heavy toll paid on for all of these uh, leaders yeah. with respect to that. And so, um, 
People don't like to be told they're doing something wrong. No, and, they don't. I think people, many people are, uh, and also those who are witness to what is wrong, uh, uh, have a tendency to be passive bystanders. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they, they say, well, you know, not, they shrug your shoulders. Well, not my problem, not on my watch. I don't want to do anything about it. Yeah. They, and, they, uh, they don't want to assume responsibility because of the potential fallout. And exactly. these yep. positions of power, um, when when there's corrupt behavior it leads to abuse of power and it's uh it's absolute uh in that way that's exactly right that's yeah. exactly right yeah yeah it's unfortunate i mean i i look at the um i i was hoping that my feedback could be helpful to the military with regard to their approach to mental health care yeah in fact you know i i proposed i proposed uh, an innovative system based upon uh, my consulting work earlier uh, uh, through the Fire Department of New York, FDNY, and learning from them their peer support outreach program for distressed firefighters. And I was really quite inspired by that. And I thought, you know, instead of having these guys go the mental health route who are grappling with PTSD and moral injury, how about if we train corpsmen and medics mm. Uh, uh, to then be the initial front, front forward face and individually ally with these guys who are grappling. And we can train them. We can develop a program to train this peer support force to then be the primary intervener. Right. And then they can consult, the, 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 the peer supporters can consult with uh, an appropriately uh, guided mental health team that helps keep people out of the mental health system right. and helps them get their lives back on track. Yeah, Unfortunately, uh, you know, the system that I was working for is not receptive to that kind of input. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, frustrating, of course, but not yeah. terribly surprising. Yeah. Um, and so your primary platform for this is CPR, the Center for Physicians' Rights. Well, it turned, yes, that is. Right now it is. And then uh, I have also uh, partnered with uh, a lawyer in London. Um, uh, and uh, we then began thinking about the larger problem of uh, how do you speak your truth in, uh, in organizations today? And so we began comparing notes about whistleblowing uh, in organizations, you know, and we began a dialogue on LinkedIn about the Volkswagen scandal and how one unfortunate Indian engineer was going to take the fall. He was, he was going to basically uh, be the fall guy for the entire Volkswagen scandal in Germany. And I thought, this is insane. This is crazy. We know it's a whole system uh, that colluded in this. And uh, so we began that dialogue. And then we started talking about other issues of sexual harassment, and racial harassment, and ethnic harassment, and, uh, and, and uh, corruption. And, and that's how we then teamed up. And we said, you know, let's, uh, let's help other people speak their truth in organizations. What's holding them back? And, 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 and how can we help empower them? Because we know that organizations are really not the not necessarily the meanies that uh, they you know may seem to the truth speaker. That there are many parts of an organization that really do want to do the right thing, and how do we help that organization? How do we help those within that organization who, within who want to do the right thing? How do we help guide them, support them, help them understand the the the, the, the framework of change? 
and teach them the strategies that they can make effective change. So, so that's Speak Up Academy. Uh, and uh, we have just formed that this uh, early this year. And uh, we're going to be offering a whole series of courses uh, and bringing people into that community. Yes, well, having that level of um, support um, uh, to an encouragement, knowing that at least there's an, a group there to turn to that has been through this, can give some guidance, I think is going to be yes. really, really important. I think that the physician yeah. demographic that you're addressing uh, will gain a lot from that um, yes. and to know how to navigate uh, this. Um, you know, it just always feels like it's such a shame to go through so much turmoil and hardship to achieve something that's positive and good. Um, but um, I'm not sure it could have happened any other way to be able to be a resource and guiding light and mentor to others going through a similar plight. Yes, I don't think there is any other way. I mean, I think that uh, it's the crucible that one has to go through. And, uh, and you come to, you know, I'd say for me, my burnout experience actually, in a way, uh, as vulnerable as it made me, it also uh, prepared me for this tumultuous journey, mm. <laughs> ironically. Yeah. And, uh, and you then say, okay, you know, there's lots, you know, how do you navigate uncertainty? And how do you navigate fear? And how do you navigate rage? You know, how do you navigate uh, unfairness? How do you navigate uh, all of these things? And you say, okay, wow, wow. Uh, all, all was in preparation uh, for the present. Yeah. It takes a lot of um, thoughtfulness, healing, perspective, sense of oneself, mindfulness, um, in order to get to that place. And I, I really just congratulate you applaud you and really it's extraordinary because um many people I, I, very few people get to that place i think you know there's sort of the the curmudgeonly embittered um battle weary uh, yeah. stereotype is very present yeah yeah and you i don't want to i don't want to live that way i don't yeah, want to work hard not to to be that no so. i just I, i'm determined i will not live uh in an embittered way that's all there is to it because the embitterment is not going to affect the change that needs to happen and we're at a time in our world in our country and in our world uh we are on the edge of non-existence yeah. and and I feel like, okay, guys, um, we cannot afford to uh, create more bitterness and conflict yeah. in the world. Yeah. Our task here is to come together and heal, and to use our to use our uh, to use the positive side of our human nature uh, to advance the cause of of civilized society, of civilization itself. Yeah. That's that's what we have to do. Absolutely. How do we best do that? Yeah. No, for sure. Well, and that's a brilliant segue because um, I was thinking about you know another platform or mechanism by which you're sharing your expertise uh, for the benefit of others is uh, is MindSense. Is that? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, indeed. Yo, thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, um, yeah. So I uh, I began looking at um, you know the, the the whole notion of emotional intelligence and Goldman's work uh, and. Uh, uh, and um, what I was really struck, I, I, I love the concept of emotional intelligence. I love the concept, uh, the, 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 the basic four quadrants of, 
that comprise emotional intelligence, which is uh, understanding self uh, and managing self, understanding others, and managing your relationship with others. Those are the big four quadrants of emotional intelligence. And um, and I, uh, uh, you know, and all of emotional intelligence uh, really begins with the great admonition, uh, you know, from the Temple of Delphi: "Know thyself." Right. And uh, and so you say, well, okay, how? <laughs> 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 can we can we how okay i got it it's important to know yourself how i mean do you have to take uh, you know you have to major in psychology to do you know you have to go through six and a half years of four times a week psychoanalysis like i did a woody allen analysis that you gotta lie on the couch for you know four times a week okay for six and a half years i think uh and i'm glad i did it i really found it really quite quite helpful yeah. because it really helps you you know, it really helps you. You have to go through all of your psychological closets. Okay. Oh, You've really got to go through everyone. You got to go through the attic. You got to go through everywhere. And so you're pretty comfortable, you know, like, okay, well, there's no more, uh, there, I guess, you know, this is not really new territory. Uh, okay. I, you know, I've kind of been there and I don't have to be afraid of it. So, but what I found is that, um, is that as I was going through my own burnout, I was trying to sort out, is this depression or is this burnout? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and I then uh, discovered accidentally that, um, that uh, one of my patients, my outpatients, uh, was, a, was a young man with a head injury, a frontal lobe head injury, who had the most gregarious spirit. He would have been the most extraordinary salesman. He could have sold you the, you know, the mud under your feet. I mean, this man, this, 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 this guy just really knew how to smile and knew how to engage. But he had a head injury from a drunk driver. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he would have episodes of rage. And so we developed a fine working relationship to try to understand what tipped the balance that brought him into a rage attack, you know, because he was mortified when he would lose it. He was mortified. And so we began doing some work around this. And I said, so what happened? You know, what, were you, what, what, what happened the night before? What happened this morning? How'd you wake, how'd you sleep? You know, did you, you and your girlfriend, you know, make love? Did you have an argument? What happened? Uh, and, and so we kind of go through this really incrementally. And I, and I realized, okay, that little piece there had, was an angry piece. And that little piece there was a sad piece. Mm. And that little piece there was a worry piece, an anxiety piece. And that little piece there was a shame piece. Right. And, and I realized, okay, these incremental dollops of emotion were then accruing. And what yeah. was really happening for him was that the was that the the lake was getting filled with these negative emotions. Mm. You know, a chunk of anger here, a chunk of anxiety here, a chunk of sadness here, a chunk of pain here, a chunk chunk of shame here. Before you know, it's all becoming a giant toxic stew. Yep. And it doesn't take much then to ignite that. That's right. Yeah. And so then, as I began developing that more and more, I realized, oh my gosh, you know, this is really, this is, this is interesting. So I then began developing more about this incremental addition of affect, emotion, and then I started realizing the power of, of internal dialogue. And and that internal dialogue tells us a lot about what we're we're always running a commentary. Okay, and our internal dialogue can tell us a lot about what we're feeling, and our feelings can tell us about a lot about what we're thinking, of and our bodies. Our we're emotional yeah, bodies right. are telling us what we're feeling and what we're thinking yeah. and our behavior, you know, whether we want to punch somebody in the face or whether we want to run from the scene, our behavior itself is telling us a lot about our emotional lives, about what we're feeling, what we're thinking. 
And then it turns out that our past, the events that we've had in our past, have also then kind of, they sit there in our theme library and they're waiting to come forward. So I, for example, I grew up with a, you know, pretty angry dad and a, and a and kind of bullying and, and, and a bullying uh, sibling. And, and, um, and so I am very reactive to bullying. I mean, I, you know, I'm hypersensitive to it. And so that was one of the reasons I'm sure why I took the stand at Camp Lejeune. Part of it is defiance. You yeah. know, part of it is, you know, you're not going to do this to me. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that our themes can come forward and mobilize us. But it's important to understand what your themes are, because if you don't know them, then what's going to happen is they're going to rule you. Of course. And, and then they're going to come out in an insane way. Yes. And so, so therefore, I then put, began putting this model together based upon my own psychoanalytic experience and my own psychotherapy training and my understanding of the holistic movement uh, of the spiritual growth movement, the positive psychology movement. And I realized, you know what? Uh, this is really amazing. So we've got these emotions. So I then went back and, and reread elements of Darwin's theory of evolution and, and his study of emotions, going all the way back to Darwin, right? Wow. And okay. looking at the basically uh, subsequent uh, development of theories of emotion and, and, and the neuropsychiatry of emotion. And, and Damasio's work, and uh, um, and uh, um, the, the synaptic mind by his uh, oh, name is slipping me right now, but he's 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 key in my thinking, uh, and and you realize, um, you, or the synaptic self is what it was, uh, and you realize, uh, oh wow, uh, that that there's a whole there's a whole framework of understanding how affect, how emotion occurs, how it how it accumulates, uh, where it's stored. And so I then started putting together a framework of that and, and looking at, at how we incrementally uh, accrue emotional loads. And then I was thinking about some of the work of, uh, of a, uh, uh, I believe, a psychologist, but certainly uh, a, a spiritual leader by the name of Byron Katie, mm -hmm. uh, who was looking at the work of, of, uh, of looking at what's possible, you know, what's keeping you in place here and what's possible. And one of the things that you go through in, uh, in, in, you know, when you're stuck in a state of turmoil, turmoil is just some combination of anger, anxiety, sadness, shame, and hurt. Right. Your task is to be able to tease that apart. And, and, but what's happening is that the more you stay stuck in these agitated states, the more you're being prevented from having a vision of what could be. Exactly. And, and then you think about the work of, uh, of the great, uh, of the great uh, myth translator, Joseph Campbell. Who spoke about find your bliss? And I said, right. "Where's bliss?" And so then I began to realize that if we got these negative emotions over here, anger, anxiety, sadness, shame, and hurt, there's also some positive emotions that we know exist, and those are love, peace, joy, pride, delight, and they exist on a continuum. Right. Here's anger. Here's love. Here's anxiety. Here's peace. Here's sadness. Here's joy. Here's shame. Here's pride. Here's pain. Here's delight. These over here are what I call the bliss emotions. Right. And the more we can put those into place, the more we fill our emotional bank accounts. The more we fill our emotional bank accounts, the more we can, we can survive the, the drain our emotional bank account from all the turmoil that we have. So it's and like neutralizing can, this toxic stew. That's exactly right. And cleansing it and dismantling it on an ongoing basis. And so the book that I'm writing uh, on MindSense is really about, uh, is really about 
um, uh, helping people take control of their psychology, decomplicating uh, emotional intelligence, you know, and really trying to create a pathway for everyone to be doing their own psychological growth work. That's yeah. my goal. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Karnan, this has been such an amazing conversation. I really do appreciate um, your willingness to be vulnerable, your candor, um, a lot of amazing insight. And um, I'm sure listeners are very inspired by, by what you've done. And, and, and hopefully there'll be a bunch of reverse inquiry and we can keep you a very busy man. <laughs> it'd be great. Oh, that'd be uh, lovely. I hope I can, uh, hope I can na navigate it. Uh, I really need to build the infrastructure of both CPR as well as Speak Up Academy so that we can, you know, we can actually uh, have the time to address inquiries. Uh, but we're still both uh, endeavors are really in their uh, still in their, you know, early phases. Uh, but I think if we can build the organizations that can help them grow that organization, I think we can make great change. We can, we can have a great impact. So yeah. it's been an honor for me too. I think it's just been a delight talking with you.